Welcome everybody to the Tripolitan. My name is Rafat Yamak. Today we have a very special guest on the Tripolitan and we have uh, a kind of uh, unique topic for today. Something that's kind of different than the other topics that we've covered. Uh, deals with speech pathology, special needs, uh, in particular autism. So today we have a special guest and her name is Samina Sattar. Samina Sattar is a speech-language pathologist who graduated with her master's from the University of West Georgia in 2017. Born to immigrant parents from Bangladesh, Samina found her passion working with culturally and linguistically diverse populations. As a speech-language pathologist, she works to evaluate, assess, diagnose, and treat children and adults with communication disorders. In grad school, her passions grew from unique opportunities, such as participating as a member of the American Speech Hearing Association Minority Student Leadership Program in 2016, and she also went on a student abroad trip to Ecuador, serving language-delayed children and their families in Quito. She spent her clinical fellowship working in a high school of predominantly refugee students from 54 countries, speaking over 47 languages. After practicing as a speech-language pathologist for the past three years, she has provided evidence-based intervention for individuals with language disorders, articulation disorders, fluency disorders, voice disorders, feeding and swallowing disorders, autism, and hearing loss. Samina currently works as a pediatric speech-language pathologist with culturally and linguistically diverse children aged from 15 months to 18 years. Samina, welcome to the Tripolitan. Thank you so much for being on today. Thank you so much for having me, Rafat. I really appreciate it. Uh, there's a lot to cover today, and uh, I'm going to try to make it as um, as focused as possible. Uh, speech pathology is, is a huge field, um, and I just kind of wanted to, you know, in the beginning, if you could just introduce the, the field to the audience. What does speech pathology really consist of? What does it entail? What are the responsibilities? And the training involved as well to become a speech pathologist. Yeah, so, you know, I, I feel like a lot of people don't know about speech language pathology. Um, uh, the the more common term, I guess, like the colloquial term for speech language pathology is a speech therapist, um, or, you know, sometimes people use the term speech teacher. Um, and, you know, I'm okay with responding to both, but I do feel like with that label, it does limit um, the the large amount of things that we do that are our scope of practice is pretty wide. So um, as a speech language pathologist, you, I remember when I started grad school, they basically said, you are gonna be a clinician working with patients from birth to death. You can start as early as someone is born, treating them with like a feeding, if, if they're having feeding difficulties, um, and then people who are nearing death, whether they're having cognition um, issues with whether it's Alzheimer's, dementia, um, brain injuries. Um, and it's it's a very wide scope because we we see all of those ages and we treat a variety of different uh, disorders that are affecting their ability to speak, comprehend, or even uh, swallow or chew food. Um, so um, like, for example, what most people know us as is uh, children who either have a stutter, we work on helping them speak more smoothly and fluently. We also work with children who have articulation impairments where they can't pronounce specific sounds, um, or if there is a pattern of sounds that they continuously miss, which is called phonological process. So that there are so many areas in, within articulation therapy itself um, 
one of the things I do mostly is language therapy. Um, and that language therapy is basically treating any person that where their ability to comprehend language or express themselves is impaired. It could be one or the other, or it could be both. Um, and there, you know, there's a lot that goes into that. And it can also be due to a person having a stroke or a brain injury or mm. autism or even um, hearing loss or Down syndrome, several other um, uh, diseases or uh, developmental delays um, can lead to can contribute to that. Um, so yeah, go ahead. No, it's uh, you know as I was saying, you know a lot of people they think speech pathology, they think just you know people with a stutter or they can't you know roll their R's or, but in in reality, um, it, you know it's you guys deal with so many different cases. Um, I wanted to touch upon, obviously you mentioned uh, Down syndrome and you mentioned autism and kind of these other develop developmental disorders. Um, what basically, I, I mean, if I can, if I can, I mean, I'm, I'm hoping I can phrase this right, but what is the connection between speech pathology and just special needs in general? How do you deal with like a diverse, um, how do you deal with so many different people coming with different issues? like whether Down syndrome or autism mm -hmm. and autism itself is a spectrum. How do you deal with each person? Mm -hmm. Is it case by case or uh, how do you go about it? Yeah. Um, you know, it, it is, it takes a very multidisciplinary approach when it comes to children with autism or with Down syndrome. Um, I think the best way to develop a treatment plan for these patients is to be able to collaborate with their physician, with a psychologist that may have evaluated them. Um, they may also be receiving other services like physical therapy, occupational therapy. Um, if they, you know, sometimes people with autism or Down syndrome have a hearing impairment. And so it's also great to stay in touch with their audiologist. Um, and if they're school aged, definitely great to stay in touch with their teacher and most importantly, their parents. Um, and so we definitely take that approach by understanding all of the facets that are kind of hindering them from thriving in this environment. Mm -hmm. um, and does, does early intervention, I mean, you know, I've read some papers about early intervention when it comes to speech therapy. Is it, and I, I, mo basically most of the people have said that speech early intervention is, you know, going to exponentially improve uh, speech for for a child is this uh, true based on your experience? Oh yes! Oh my gosh! It's so it is definitely true because I have seen, um, you know, it it always it definitely depends on the child all the time. It depends. Um, it depends on how you know some some children do very well even if they started late as long as the parents are very involved in their child's success um but the, the earlier has always been it's always been the earlier the better as soon as you can detect something a concern a possible delay it's always best to get that checked out because it makes that progress uh, it makes the progress that much quicker mm -hmm. okay yeah that's 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 what i've been reading i i feel like some parents in the beginning they might kind of be in uh, denial mode, like, no, no, there's no way my kid might have any right. issues. And, um, you know, then ultimately, if they had acted maybe a little bit earlier, uh, the, the program would have been more efficient or the treat the mm -hmm. treatment program. Yeah. So when so you said you did you did grad school, correct, uh, Samina? Right. So what kind of training were you uh, doing? Was it like kind of field work, hands on or classroom or mm -hmm. everything basically yeah it was all of them so starting grad school um i 
they have the option of doing a three-year master's if you don't have a bachelor's degree in the field. Um, and then there's a two-year. So I did the three-year program. And during the first year, um, we actually got the opportunity to start uh, working in the university itself had a clinic. So we worked at their clinic where they served children with communication disorders. And we were paired with a clinician, a graduate student clinician, who was a little bit more experienced than us. And they kind of mentored us on what it looks like to provide therapy, what it's like to take notes, um, how to talk to parents, um, how to evaluate, et cetera. And on top of that, there were multiple courses we had to take. So we were full-time students throughout most of grad school. And um, every semester we had some sort of rotation. Um, mm. So on top, on the first year we had our, we had clinic, um, that was our rotation, the, the university clinic. Mm. And then the second year we had a fall, spring and summer semester where we took courses and we had a different rotation off campus. So the first mm. semester we actually did a school-based rotation um, to experience what it's like working as a speech language pathologist mm -hmm. in a school, whether it's like an elementary, middle or high school. And then the second rotation was kind of like a mini medical um, externship. So we either worked in like a private practice or um, a skilled nursing facility or home health or a hospital. And then during the summer, we had an extended medical externship where we would either be like in a hospital, it's like the other places that I mentioned. Yeah, and I know you, you know, in, in the in the bio, we, um, uh, you mentioned, uh, or actually, I, I did in the introduction. I mentioned the fact that you had went to Ecuador. Um, did did you notice any kind of uh, like cultural stigma that was that? was you know prevalent maybe in ecuador more so than than the united states or more so in the united states compared to ecuador when it came to speech pathology and the transparency from parents to kind of openly talk about this in a comfortable way yeah i definitely saw a difference um one of the things i noticed the area that we were serving um you know it was very it was a low-income area and I actually noticed a bit of a similarity there um, compared to here where I live in Atlanta, um, where I served also another low income community, um, but they were not from, um, they were not from, they were not um, from a different country. They, um, they were all American and there were some similarities, similarities where parents did not know about warning signs of language delays. It was very typical of parents to think, oh, if they're not talking by two years, they'll eventually catch up, they'll eventually start speaking. Or um, if their child has um, special needs, it is frowned upon. Um, but it is definitely, I did notice that it is more stigmatized in keto than it was um, here in the US. And I guess moving, I mean, uh, staying on the same topic, but moving on to a different community, uh, you know, the Muslim community in the United States and even globally. Um, how do you how do you feel like, I mean, based on your experience, if you've dealt with any, you know, Muslim clients, uh, American Muslim clients or just, you know, non-American Muslims, uh, how do you feel um, or based on your experience, rather, how, how was it dealing with? Muslim clients when it came to speech therapy and a lot of them that came for speech therapy for kids that might have special needs. Did you feel like it was stigma? Did you feel like they were speaking about it in a way that was kind of, uh, cause you know, in our community, it's still, 
people don't like to talk about these things still openly mm-hmm. um, till now. So I just wanted to kind of see what you thought about it, if you've had experience in that regard. Yeah, you know, it's still not really talked about openly. And I'll tell you, I remember that even it like learning a lot about different types of developmental delays and disorders um i it was very eye-opening for me because i recall a trip i took to bangladesh when i was younger and um we got to stay at a couple of the villages that my parents used to live at and they introduced me to some like family members some distant family members and they would they would refer to some of the kids who had special needs as dumb and I would just look at them and like, you know, they're like, oh yeah, nobody talks to them, they're dumb. So it's it's basically hopeless. Um, it, it was really sad for me to see that because I, I also remembered being an elementary school student, having special needs classmates and seeing that they had like extra assistance. Um, so it was kind of confusing, but also like, you know, when that, when our family kind of explains to us that that's how it is, um, you know, it part of that kind of, you kind of carry part of that with you. Um, yep. And as I got older, before I discovered speech pathology, I uh, remember seeing a couple of people with autism um, and I didn't know how I could carry a conversation with them. I wanted to, but I just kept thinking, you know, maybe they're not gonna understand what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I feel like that's definitely prevalent with a lot of community members. I even hear it when I speak to some of my friends today, when I'll talk about hearing loss or I'll talk about autism and they'll say something like, oh, may Allah like heal them or cure them. But the thing is that to them, to these people with autism and hearing loss, they don't look at it as a disease. It's a part of who they are. Um, and so, you know, I my hope and my my wish is that it continues to become less it's it's continued looked at less as a disability, but more as like a way of life yeah. for people. I, I think I think that's a great point that you're making. And I think especially like, you know, I mean everybody, it's it's affecting all communities, but especially the Muslim uh, community here in the US, uh, they're starting to realize that this I mean, I, I read a statistic, I think it's like one in every eighty eight uh one in every eighty eight uh, children have uh, will have autism or something or will be on the autism spectrum. So the fact yeah. is it's it's becoming really prevalent and people are starting to have to force to really understand, you know, what's going on here and that there is a diversity uh, when it comes to people having, you know, certain issues and how to deal with it. Um, would, you, would you have any suggestions regarding, you know, the Muslim, to the Muslim American community, if you can give any suggestions, especially like the mosques? Um, you know, sometimes some parents might be a little bit uh, hesitant to bring uh, a child with special needs to the mosque because he may act out. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, maybe the mosque administration or, you know, any Islamic institutions in the country can provide some kind of accommodation um, for these uh, kids. And uh, I just wanted to kind of also get your input on that, having worked in the field, if that's possible um, or if that can be accommodated in general. Yeah, I I think one of the the main things we should work on is just start having conversations. Um, I don't think families should shy away from speaking to community leaders about how to include their children or their loved ones that have a special need. Um, because I, you know, I used to be a part of this organization called MIST. I don't know if you've heard of it. Mm. Um, 
It stands for Muslim Interscholastic Tournament. And mm -hmm. I was on the board of it for about eight years. And during my time on there, you know, our mission was always to make an environment uh, very inclusive for the Muslim youth. And it was um, particularly for Muslim high school students where they got to compete in a variety of different competitions for one weekend. They all came in, um, they all came from different high schools in one region. And then um, once you do well in that region, you can compete in the national tournament. And every year they keep talking about inclusivity. And as I started becoming more well-informed about um, different types of special needs um, and people with disabilities, I just thought about how like, there really isn't a lot out there for, you know, some people who want, who have special needs and want to feel included and they want to feel like they're a part of something. Um, and so I feel like it can start with different community organizations where we can ask questions like how can, and be very specific, like how can somebody with autism um, attend this? How can a deaf person attend this? Um, yep. I, I have seen like some massages doing like ASL. Um, I've seen some massages also do a good job with um, including people with autism. Um, actually, the more politically correct way of saying that is autistic. So yeah. I'm going to keep, I'm going to stick with that um, okay. with for autistic people to volunteer at the masjid or um, you can even hire people. So like, that's actually something I want to do. I have this dream job of like opening up a cafe and hiring specifically Muslim um, autistic people or those other people with special needs, because I do know they have the capability and I feel like I have the tools to help them thrive in, in a work setting. Yeah. And you know, that that's really, that's a great dream to have. Um, uh, you know, even I was, uh, as you're saying, it's starting to pick up a little bit more slowly. Uh, I saw this one mosque on their Facebook page. Uh, I can't recall which one, but you know, because April is autism awareness month and they were doing some kind of event and, it was kind of just good to see that that uh, that finally you know message that they're starting to pick up on this more, and the idea that you mentioned about you know uh, incorporate incorporating autistic children for example in volunteering autistic youth, uh, even adults uh, in their volunteer programs that's just fantastic, uh, and you and you've seen you know even some of these um, grocery stores they've been hiring people like uh, Kroger mm -hmm. and. We have here in Texas uh, a supermarket chain called HEB. They do the same as well. They hire um, you know people with uh, special needs. So it's really really good to see that it's starting to be it's starting to become more prevalent. Uh, you know hiring uh, these kinds of people. Um, I wanted to actually ask you because I'm uh, a little bit curious. Maybe I should have asked you this in the beginning. However, what really inspired you to enter speech pathology? I know you mentioned that you it took uh, you did the three-year master's program, which mm -hmm. for me, if I was to assume, your bachelor's was in something very different. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, it was. Okay. Um, yeah. So I actually didn't know anything about speech language pathology until maybe my second year of undergrad. And I, I just couldn't figure out what I wanted to do. Um, I... I, I'm the type of person that just really wants to make sure that I'm going to really love what I do and I'm making some sort of impact. And I, one of the reasons why I picked this field is because um, in one year, I think 2013, speech language pathology was considered like one of the top 10 whitest jobs in America. Mm -hmm. And that was really alarming because like the populations that they serve 
are, people come from so many different backgrounds and it makes me question how culturally competent are some of these therapists. Mm -hmm. So um, I wanted to go into the field because I specifically wanted to serve people that looked like me or maybe had culture similar to mine, mm -hmm. um, which I'm doing now, alhamdulillah, which I'm, I'm really thankful for. Awesome. Um, and another reason why I found I wanted to do pursue this is because um, in my in my when I started my bachelor's, I was bouncing around majors like, OK, maybe psychology, maybe education. Um, and then I kind of I looked more into education. I was like, maybe I should do special education, but I still felt that to be a bit limiting. Um, and I have so much respect for special educators. I, I just wanted to do more. Um, and so I stumbled upon speech language pathology from this, uh, there was this girl that my sister used to nanny for who received uh, speech therapy and occupational therapy. And um, my sister let me come over once and I saw that a speech therapist had visited her home and she told me all about the field, how diverse it is, how, you know, you can come, you can pick your own hours, you can show up at someone's house. And if you're tired of doing that, you can, um, you can start your own thing. It's very easy to start your own practice or you can work in the hospital. And I just thought that was really amazing. And um, now that I'm out there as a practicing SLP, um, I, I'm really excited to just like kind of dip my toes into different settings, um, mm. especially, and so that I can especially find Muslim families that I can work with so that they can also be advocates to other Muslims who, who lack the knowledge or, you know, want to feel some sort of like hope for their loved one with a communication disorder or special need. Oh, that's great. Honestly, that's that's a really noble cause, and and it's it's great that you're like you're entering this field with that intention. I think many people will be very happy to hear this. I mean, whoever hears this episode to hear that there are people, you know, especially you know our generation coming out there with uh, uh, with that kind of outlook uh, with with respect to especially speech pathology. Um, that that's fantastic to hear. You know, a lot of times, another thing I want to kind of get your opinion on. <clears throat> a lot of focus is put on the parents, and obviously, the parents play a tremendous role when it comes to improving, you know, speech. Whether it's their kid has special needs or just even doesn't have special needs, but he's just you know has speech issues. But uh, what role does what role do the siblings play in general in helping alleviate some of these speech issues? Uh, how can they be of assistance? Um, any kind of general tips regarding that? Yeah, I I really love hearing when um, a child that I'm working with has a sibling. Um, and I always try to encourage that because there are multiple times where I'll see a child and they're too scared to come back to my office and it's because they think they're in a doctor's office and they think yeah. they're about to get a shot or something but i'm like no we're actually just gonna play yeah, <laughs> and yeah. they don't they still don't want to um and so to alleviate some of that concern i always encourage the parent can you bring their sister or their brother and let them like sit with us and it's really great to see like across the board i have seen all almost all siblings, whether they're a younger sibling or an older sibling, play such a supportive role for their sibling um, who has a special need. And it's really beautiful because I think they have this empathy, like this is my own, this person like is one of my own people. So I want, I really want to take care of them. And so I tell parents like really maximize on that. Like, you know, it's really tiring for you as a parent to do it alone. And you know, you can, you don't have to do it alone. Your, your daughter, your son also wants to help and let them help. Um, it helps the person who's also 
um, learning to communicate. It helps them feel like, you know, they have support from someone closer to their age where it doesn't feel like a task. It feels like, you know, they have a friend. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I feel like it builds the self-esteem of the person that has that speech issues. I'm sure, I mean, maybe you can expand on this a bit more, but I'm assuming that, you know, people that have some kind of speech issues, they tend to suffer a bit more bullying than say a person who has no speech mm-hmm. issues. Um, so I, I'm, I'm assuming, I'm, I'm guessing that, you know, with, with, you know, positive reinforcement from the siblings, ideally the kid with a speech issue should have more self-esteem in dealing with some of the issues that he may, might face at school, including bullying. Yeah, for sure. I've, I've heard a lot of cases of bullying and um, the child ending up with anxiety as a result, um, which definitely doesn't help their ability to communicate. Yeah, yeah, that's, it's, uh, I mean, bullying in general is, is a huge problem here in the U.S., especially in, you know, in some of the uh, public schools, it depends on the district mm-hmm. you live in as well. Um, and, and I guess that goes back to the whole issue that a lot of times, especially when it comes to some of the, you know, fresh immigrant families that might live in, let's say, uh, disadvantaged neighborhoods, uh, they go. Their kids go to school districts that aren't very um, that aren't very well funded, basically. So they don't have the resources. The schools don't have the resources to, to deal with this. And on top of that, you have an environment that may be a bit toxic to somebody that might suffer from this, and it just contributes to a bigger and bigger and bigger problem. Yeah, that's so true, and that's why it's so important that they get um, some sort of intervention by. A clinician who's very trained to address these concerns because I feel like not only are we therapists and clinicians, but we're also counselors, and I think it's really important for us to do our part for those families that are not getting that adequate support. Yeah, yep. And uh, honestly, Samina, you've uh, I can't appreciate enough what you're doing. Uh, many people, I think, as I mentioned before, that that will listen to this episode will will appreciate that there are people out there who could kind of reach out. Um, do you happen to have, uh, like, if, let's say if somebody want to reach out to you, do you happen to have an email that, you know, you can maybe share on this episode or? Yeah, uh, definitely. Um, you can definitely, they can email me to my personal account. I'll, I'll definitely respond. Okay. Okay. Would you mind sharing that? Uh, yeah. If you have, it's, uh, it's, uh, Samina, S-A-M-I-N-A dot Satar, S-A-T-T-A-R at gmail.com. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. And uh, to finally end with the final question, um, there is, I'm sure there's a lot of, especially Muslims who are interested in the speech pathology uh, field. Do you have any suggestions for anybody who's entering, especially people who may have kind of similar to your background, maybe they've done a bachelor's that's not, uh, has maybe nothing to do with anything to do with speech pathology, but now that they're interested in getting into it, any kind of general tips, advice uh, to anybody who might be interested in pursuing speech pathology? Yeah, my advice is to, um, you know, it, if you are pursuing it, it is it can be a difficult road, but it is so worth it. And you will be so appreciated in this field. I think that's one of the advantages that we have is that the work that we do is not only rewarding, but it is appreciated. And I think it's important to feel appreciated in this field because it, it can be easy to get burned out. Um, and I also say just whatever support you get from people around you, hold on to them because you're going to continuously grow and you're going to keep learning. Um, so always keep an open mind um, 
keep your mind open to learning more about cultures. And also, not only are you going to be applying these skills in your job, I would definitely challenge those who are pursuing this to um, try to carry over that in their personal life um, and to keep educating people around you um, with regards to communication disorders, people with special needs, um, on how to best include them in the community. Thank you, Samina. With that beautiful note, uh, we'll end today's episode. I really can't thank you enough. Thank you so much for being on. And uh, we hope to see more of your great work and uh, hopefully also that our paths can cross soon. Thank you so much for being on today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And for our audience, um, if you want to follow The Tripolitan, you'll find us on Facebook and Twitter. And uh, you'll find us on Spotify as well and Google Podcasts and on YouTube. Feel free to like, share, subscribe. And we hope to see you soon again. Thank you.